A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 37. Jesus said to his disciples, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill, and whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members, then that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, Do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Well, my friends, we continue our exploration of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And this Sunday's pericope is quite long. It's quite extensive. And so there's much ground for us to cover, and we certainly will not be able to exhaust its meaning and significance. But nevertheless, what I'd like to do is I'd like to go through this portion, this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and offer you some insight that I think will help you to appreciate the radical nature of this discourse, because it truly is radical and would have been incredibly shocking and sobering to the Jews of the first century. 
So with that said, what I'd like to do is, is just reiterate what I've been stating all along since we've begun this exploration, namely that Jesus is being presented here as the new and greater Moses. Moses ascended the mountain of God in order to receive the law of God. We know that Moses then descended from the mountain in order to deliver those commandments to the Israelites who remained at the foot or the base of the mountain. Now, Jesus, in contrast, Jesus, who is the new Moses, he, in imitation of Moses, he ascends the Mount of Beatitudes. But what's different here, what's really striking, and its symbolism, it it just can't be missed. Unlike the Moses of old, Jesus, the new Moses, in ascending the mountain, he ascends not to receive the law, for he is the God-man. He is the ultimate lawgiver. But what's fascinating is that he beckons his disciples to join him, to ascend the mountain with him. And this is symbolic of what? Of precisely what Jesus is doing with the Sermon on the Mount. You see, Jesus is not merely a new Moses or another Moses, but is a greater Moses. He is calling his disciples to come up, to ascend He's calling his followers to a higher moral standard, greater and higher than that of Moses. And we're going to see this explicated in a particular way in today's gospel as he compares and contrasts Moses' teaching, Moses' law, and the interpretation of Moses' teaching and law with that of his own. And this is going to be shocking for Jesus' disciples shocking, embracing, and and even a bit scandalous because it appears at first glance that the Jesus is somehow seeking to abolish the law. But what is the first thing that Jesus does? The first words out of his mouth in this particular section of his Sermon on the Mount are these. Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the Greek term that's employed there is pleruo, which means what? To complete, to fulfill, to perfect. Jesus immediately issues a disclaimer because he knows full well that a good number of his followers are going to be scandalized by what he is about to declare. And so he immediately issues this disclaimer. Let me make it abundantly clear that I have not come to do away with and to abolish, to destroy to minimize or to water down the law of Moses, the law and the prophets, which is essentially a description of the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew scriptures. The law and the prophets represent the two major divisions of the Hebrew scriptures. And so Jesus is making it plain. I have not come to destroy the law, to abolish it, but I have come to fulfill it, to complete it, to perfect it, to elevate it. And so the fact that Jesus ascends the mountain and his disciples follow after him and ascend as well, that points symbolically to the fact that Jesus is calling us to elevate our understanding, to deepen our understanding. He's calling us to a higher standard of living. And in fact, he declares in this very pericope that unless our righteousness exceeds and surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, We will not enter the kingdom of heaven because he's calling us to a higher moral standard. And so in this passage, we're going to see how he compares and contrasts the law of Moses with his own law, the teaching of Moses with his own teaching. Now, be clear, his teaching builds upon the law of Moses and the teaching of Moses, but he is crystallizing. He is unpacking the fullness of the meaning of the law and the teaching of Moses. So please, I want to clue you into that because this sermon, this portion of the sermon was absolutely revolutionary and must have not only raised eyebrows, but really it must have absolutely shocked his first century Jewish listeners who I think very easily could have misinterpreted Jesus because of the force of his teaching because he taught as one with authority. But here Jesus is not seeking to supplant. 
He's not seeking to undermine and to abolish the law. No. Pleruo. He is seeking to complete, to fulfill it, to perfect it. And so let's continue with this introductory section of this portion of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, because we're going to see a series of six, what scripture scholars refer to as antitheses. I don't particularly agree with this terminology because these statements where he contrasts, you've heard it said, but I say Jesus here is not contradicting. He's not declaring something that is in complete opposition to the law of Moses. And so in that respect, this is not antithetical. These statements are not antitheses. These really are statements that seek to deepen and crystallize our understanding. So I don't particularly agree with the the choice of terminology here, but what they're getting at is that Jesus here is comparing and contrasting Moses' teaching with his teaching, which is superior. He's calling us to a greater and higher moral standard. So, picking up again, I repeat, verse 17, Think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 18, for truly I say to you, or amen, I say to you. This is a form of speech known as solemn declaration. Amen, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So here Jesus, he is furnishing his listeners with this disclaimer. He's not seeking to abolish the law. In fact, amen, I say to you, solemnly I say to you, I declare to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So he's not seeking to undermine or destroy the law. He is seeking to safeguard and to perfect it. Verse 19, whoever then relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus here further declares to his disciples his intentions. His intentions are not to do away with, to abolish, to water down, to relax. No, he wants to safeguard. He wants to protect. In fact, he wants to elevate and he wants to fulfill or make perfect these laws. Verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, what's that all about? Well, it's a very bold statement because the scribes and the Pharisees, who were the scribes and Pharisees? The scribes were the first century equivalent of scripture scholars. And the Pharisees themselves were the paragons. They were the icons of what it meant to be a righteous, God-fearing, law-abiding Jew. I mean, they set the standard and they set it high. In fact, not only were they so zealous and devoted to fulfilling and practicing the Mosaic law, but they took upon themselves what they refer to as the tradition of the elders. They placed upon themselves the burden of having to go above and beyond the letter of the law. But these were the models of righteousness and holiness. They set the standard. And so for Jesus to say, unless your righteousness surpasses or exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What a shocking statement. No doubt raising many of the eyebrows of his first century Jewish audience. We must be more righteous than the truly righteous ones, the the scribes and the Pharisees, impossible. But what is Jesus pointing to here? As we're going to see as we go through this passage, Jesus is pointing to the fact that the scribes and Pharisees, they were legalists. The scribes and Pharisees were zealous about observing the very letter of the law and were focused on these external practices. But what Jesus was seeking to point out to his followers is that their righteousness must surpass or exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, not in terms of 
of going above and beyond in terms of the external practices that were required by the Mosaic law. But no, Jesus was aiming for the heart. And this is what he's going to crystallize in today's gospel. The heart and spirit of the law. Not merely the external requirements and duties that must be performed, but he's talking about the heart. In fact, when Jesus declares that he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them, he's pointing to the fact that the prophecy of the Old Testament, which spoke of the covenant that God established with his people, specifically through Moses and through the Exodus experience, that God is going to establish a new covenant, a greater covenant. In fact, I'm going to point out to you a very significant text. If you turn with me to the book of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31, beginning in verse 31, very easy to remember. Jeremiah 31, 31. Here the Lord, speaking through the prophet, declares, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, speaking of the Exodus. My covenant which they broke, He's referring to Exodus chapter 32. Remember that Moses went up the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. And when he descended to deliver the Ten Commandments, the Israelites, who had grown impatient, were engaged in an orgy of idolatry. Remember, they fashioned the golden calf in order to worship it. And so he's speaking of this covenant that he established with the Israelites in the wilderness, in the desert, a covenant which they broke. Though I was their husband, says the Lord. Verse 33, but this, this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. He's speaking of this new covenant. I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Once again, I will put my law within them, and I will write it upon their hearts. Now he's comparing and contrasting the old covenant. Remember that that God wrote on the two stone tablets, the Ten Commandments, with his very finger. And these commandments were delivered to the Israelites. Well, in this new covenant, that God is going to establish, we know through his only begotten son, he is going to write his law, not on stone tablets, but on our very hearts. He's going to place his law within us. What is Jesus doing on the Mount of Beatitudes? He is fulfilling this very prophecy. For he's seeking to elevate, to call his disciples to a higher standard. He's come to crystallize, to perfect, to complete, to fulfill the law, the law that he's going to write on their hearts, on their consciences. Jesus, in this sermon, is aiming for the heart. Another passage I'll point to, very significant here, is Matthew chapter 15. Turn with me to Matthew 15. In Matthew 15, Jesus is engaging with the Pharisees, who, as I said earlier, they observed not only the 613 laws which comprised the Mosaic law, but they took on the tradition of the elders, certain additional laws and and, and requirements and duties that they had to perform in order to demonstrate their righteousness. And Jesus here, in engaging in this debate with the likes of the scribes and Pharisees in particular, he states here regarding that which defiles us because they were hung up on these purity codes, these purity laws that absolutely missed the meaning and the essence of what God was calling his people to. Jesus states in verse 18, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a man. Jesus is stating that not the things from without, the external things, 
That's not what defiles a man, but that which comes from and flows from the heart, that which comes from within. That's Jesus' thesis here. So in verse 18, he says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a man. For out of the heart come what? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. Verse 20, these are what defile a man. Let's stop there. Why am I pointing this out? Once again, Jesus is drawing his interlocutors, the Pharisees in this particular instance, but he does this with all of his disciples, ultimately, and especially through the Sermon on the Mount, is he's calling them to recognize that the genesis, the genesis of sins that are committed, it begins in the heart. It begins in the human heart. And he's calling them to the recognition that the genesis of, for example, murders we're going to see in the first instance, if we go back to our gospel, we'll see that he begins by comparing and contrasting with these six antitheses. Once again, I don't agree with that particular nomenclature, but nevertheless, because I think it's a misnomer, but you understand where I'm going with this. There are six statements, six antitheses that Jesus goes through with his listeners. Four of them we're going to deal with here briefly in today's episode. The other two we find in next Sunday's gospel. We'll deal with that then. But Jesus begins here to compare and contrast. And specifically here, he's speaking of the commandment, thou shalt not kill. If you go back to Exodus chapter 20 and we go through the Decalogue, Jesus is drawing from the Decalogue, the 10 words or the 10 commandments. And he states here in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. And whoever kills shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and this is certainly a statement that must have ruffled a lot of feathers. Wait a minute. How can you say, well, yes, you've heard it said to the men of old, obviously through the mouth of Moses, you shall not kill. But I say to you, Jesus here is speaking with great authority, with great power. That no doubt shocked his first century Jewish listeners. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not kill. Whoever kills is liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council and whoever says you fool shall be liable to the hell of fire. What is going on here? Jesus is comparing and contrasting. The law of Moses says thou shalt not kill or one will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, and here Jesus is what? He is elevating. He's calling his disciples to an even higher standard higher moral standard, he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. So he's speaking about anger. Anger is the genesis. It's the starting point. It's the foundation of what could then metastasize into an act of violence, murder, the taking of an innocent human life. So it begins with anger, and that anger metastasizes and grows into rage and wrath. And then if unchecked, if unguarded, it can then result in us acting out with violence. And so Jesus, what is he going for? He's not going for, he's not speaking of merely the external act of of taking someone's life, but he's speaking of the genesis. He's speaking of the heart. What is Jesus aiming for? He's aiming for the heart. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, et cetera, et cetera. This is the genesis. That's what he's going for. He's calling us to a higher standard. And so I say to you, Jesus declares, whoever is angry with his brother shall be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother shall be liable to the council. And in some translations in the New American Bible translation, which we use for our lectionary, it says, if one was to call their brother 
or say to their brother, Raka, which is an Aramaic word. We don't precisely and definitively know its, its meaning, but there are many who speculate that it essentially means empty, as in empty-headed, as in a numbskull, an idiot, that if one insults their brother, that one will be liable to judgment. And he goes on, and whoever says you fool, and when you look at the original Greek, the term there is more, which is where we get the English term moron. So if you insult your brother, calling him raka, empty-headed, idiot, you fool, you moron, you shall be liable to the hell of fire or to the Gehenna of fire. And Gehenna is a valley just outside of the city of Jerusalem to the east that historically was a place of pagan worship, idolatry. And what's more, it was a place where human sacrifice was offered to these false gods. So it was it was a place of, of grave depravity and as such, it was a place that was defiled. And eventually over time, it became a garbage dump. And that's where people brought their trash and their refuse and their waste and they set it on fire and it was on fire continually. So it became a metaphor for hell. It became a metaphor for eternal punishment. And so he is saying here that if we consent to anger and if that anger goes unchecked, it can metastasize ultimately to wrath and then eventuate in acts of unjust aggression and violence against our neighbor. And so Jesus is aiming for the, he's calling us to a higher standard. He continues, verse 23, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. And the scripture that comes to mind is, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I mean, this is a perfect application of that iconic statement. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And Jesus here is exhorting his, his followers that if you're going to come to bring your gift to the altar and to offer sacrifice to the Lord, but yet there is animosity, there is enmity between you and your brother Leave your gift there before the altar and go first and be reconciled with your brother. Again, mercy. And then come and offer your gift. Verse 25, make friends quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out till you have paid the last penny. And so Jesus here continues to to unpack this teaching regarding the importance of what? Of guarding one's heart against wrath. Of guarding one's heart against seeking to retaliate and to, to insult and to wound others with our words because then that can metastasize and snowball into unspeakable acts of vengeance and, and, and of sin. So Jesus once again, calling us to a higher standard. We must be merciful. We must be forgiving. We must seek to be reconciled with our neighbor, particularly with our enemies. We cannot presume on the mercy of God if we're not showing mercy to our brothers and sisters. That's the first antithesis. We then move to the next one concerning adultery. Verse 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his what? His heart. The Greek term there is cardia, which is not merely the seat of, of emotions or feelings, but it also represents the seat of the will, the place where we execute decisions. And so here Jesus is calling his disciples to a greater and higher standard. Who among us has not engaged in this sin of adultery of the heart, of lusting after another person, of looking at someone and objectifying them 
as a sexual object. We're all guilty of that. Now, let me make it very clear that Jesus here is not suggesting that that being attracted to someone is in and of itself sinful. It's not. Feeling attracted to another person is not sinful. It's benign. It's what we do as a result of that attraction. If we begin to objectify that person, if we begin in our imagination to fantasize about them sexually, then we're objectifying them and we are committing a sin. That's what Jesus is pointing to. It's the genesis. I mean, before one can get into that place where one is engaging physically with someone in the act of adultery, it first begins, it's born in the human heart when we begin to lust after that person. And then lust can metastasize into action when we engage physically with another person. So Jesus, once again, he's pointing to the heart. In the previous example, anger, which can lead to wrath, which can lead to violence and even murder. Lust in the heart, the objectification of the person can lead to us acting out and committing the physical act of adultery. So Jesus, again, is holding us to a higher standard, a higher moral standard. And in fact, it's at this point when Jesus engages a certain teaching technique known as hyperbolic speech. In order to to punctuate his statement here, he declares in verse 29, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Verse 30, and if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, what's going on here? Is Jesus somehow advocating self-mutilation as a path to sanctification? No, no. Let me be very clear. Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. Jesus is using here hyperbolic speech. That's exaggerated speech in order to punctuate his point, in order to, to drive home his message. We must maintain custody of the eyes, not pluck our eyes out, but no, to maintain a custody over the eyes and over our members. Remember, he's pointing to two of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods. So we must maintain custody of the eyes and custody of our hands and our members and our faculties because if left unchecked, we will fall into ruin. And so again, Jesus is not advocating self-mutilation. He's advocating custody, custody of our faculties, of our members in order that we might glorify God. Moving on now to our next antithesis regarding divorce Verse 31, Jesus continues, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now here Jesus is referring to Moses' allowance. See, back in Exodus chapter 24, Moses allows for divorce. And he instructs that those who are seeking to divorce their spouses are to issue a bill of divorce, a certificate of divorce, which would require at least two witnesses in order to send their spouse, their wife, from the home. Now, it's important to note, my friends, that words are important. And when it states here the term divorce, in our understanding, we think that means the end of a marriage, the dissolution of a marriage. But when you look at the original Greek here, the term is apoluo, which means what? It doesn't mean dissolution or end of a marriage. It means to dismiss, to send away. And that's different, my friends. To dismiss or to send away. And you'll understand this a little bit more in a moment. But let me finish Jesus' declaration here. In verse 32, Jesus declares, But I say to you that everyone who divorces, again, the Greek term apoluo, who dismisses his wife, who sends his wife away, except on the ground of unchastity, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, what do we make of this? Again, words are important. 
Stick with me. That term, divorce, apoluo, to send away, to dismiss. Jesus has a run-in with the Pharisees, the legalists, the righteous ones, who begin to question him on this very subject of divorce. And if you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19, I'll give you a little snippet of this. I think this is going to shed some light on Jesus' position here. Beginning in verse 3, And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Again, they're referring back to Moses, his allowance, Exodus 24. He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? Hold on a second. What is Jesus doing here? He's quoting from the book of Genesis, which is a book, one of five books attributed to Moses. The five books of Moses. Moses is believed to be the author of the first five books of the Bible, including Genesis. So here, the Pharisees are referring to Moses. Moses is teaching. (laughs) But then Jesus here is quoting Moses to refute Moses. Stick with me. Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one? So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Jesus here is quoting from Genesis. He is speaking of the one flesh union between a man and a woman. He's speaking of the indissolubility of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's significant, my friends. The passage continues. Verse 7, they said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Verse 8, he said to them, this is Jesus, watch this, for your hardness of heart, cardia, for your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Close quote. Once again, for your hardness of heart. See, this was not God's intention. From the very beginning, we know if we read the book of Genesis, God unites man and wife. He unites them in a one flesh union that is indissoluble that is permanent. But yet Moses, because of the hardness of the hearts of the Israelites, he allowed for and permitted husbands to dismiss, to send away their wives. Now this no doubt caused tremendous harm in the long run. And it did violence to the institution of marriage as God intended it. What is Jesus doing here? Once again, he is seeking to elevate. He is seeking to perfect, to fulfill the law, to get to the heart of it. And so he is challenging his his listeners, his disciples. Here are the Pharisees. And he's appealing to Moses himself, who wrote the book of Genesis, and God's intention. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. Jesus is aiming for the heart. This theme keeps coming up again and again. For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed for divorce. But from the beginning, it was not so. I will write my law on their hearts. Jesus has come to do precisely that. He's aiming for the heart. He's calling us, summoning us to a radical discipleship. Summoning us, he's beckoning us to to elevate our understanding, to deepen our understanding. He wants to crystallize the will of God and the law of God for us. And he's calling us to a radical interiorization of this law. To embrace this higher standard, this call to righteousness. And ultimately to perfection, as we're going to see in next Sunday's gospel. 
be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And that's what Jesus is aiming for. He's aiming for the heart. For your hardness of heart, cardia, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Go back to our gospel. Verse 32, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, who dismisses his wife, who sends her away, except on the ground of unchastity, and the Greek word there is porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. Porneia, for illicit, immoral, sexual activity except on the ground of pornea, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, very quickly here. But I say to you that everyone who dismisses his wife makes her an adulteress. Well, if a husband dismisses his wife, sends her away, that is, separates from her, she has one of two choices. Since he's put her from the home, she can either marry another man, in which case she would be committing adultery because she's still married to her husband who dismissed her, who sent her away, but still that bond of marriage is still there. So she would either have to remarry just in terms of survival. She'd have to marry another man, thus committing adultery, or she would have to surrender herself to a life of prostitution which would also be considered adultery because she would be engaging in fornication. She would be engaging in the sexual act with men who were not her husband. And so when Jesus states here that everyone who divorces his wife makes her an adulteress and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, obviously, if we're following Jesus's train of thought here, his logic here, if he's speaking and appealing to the indissolubility of marriage, if someone marries a divorced woman, that person is committing adultery because she is still married to her husband. Divorce, the mere fact that he has dismissed her and sent her from the home does not equate, does not equal the dissolution of the marriage. I hope that makes sense for you. Now, what does it mean here, this clause, except on the ground of unchastity? What is that a reference to? Unchastity, porneia, means unlawful sexual activity here, immoral sexual activity. So say, for example, the woman, the wife, engages in an adulterous affair. The husband discovers this. The husband then writes her a certificate of dismissal. He dismisses her on those grounds. Nevertheless, they still remain married. Now they have one of two choices to make. They can either remain separated and not remarry because they are still married. The indissolubility of marriage. Even if one were to break the marriage covenant by stepping outside of the marriage, they're still married. So you can put her away and they can remain separated but not remarry or they can reconcile and continue to be married. But according to Jesus, divorce is not an option. What God has joined together, let not man put asunder. And so that's what he's getting at. And that would have shocked his listeners. It certainly would have shocked the Pharisees who would have taken exception to that because Jesus here is, is going against a precedent that had been set by Moses that had very grave and deleterious effects on the fabric of society. And Jesus, who's the ultimate lawgiver, is seeking to right that wrong. From the beginning, it was not so. That was not God's intention. But because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed for this. But Jesus is coming to elevate. He's coming to call us to a higher standard and to defend the indissolubility of marriage. Again, much more can be said on this topic, but I want to be brief so that we can move on. You can look at the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and I certainly will put up here on the screen 
some of the sections of the catechism that you can read so that you can continue your reflection on this topic. But Jesus here is defending the integrity of and the indissolubility of marriage. We continue to the next and final of these four antitheses. Again, next week we're going to deal with the final two. We pick up in verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to the men of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not swear at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make one here white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Close quote. So what's going on here? Well, Jesus, once again, for this fourth antithesis, is comparing and contrasting the teaching of Moses with his own teaching. And he quotes Moses, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But it became commonplace over time. And clearly this was evident in the time of Jesus, which is why he's addressing it. It became commonplace for people to swear what were known as lesser oaths. They wouldn't swear to God or swear to heaven or by heaven, but they would swear by lesser things. And this became so commonplace. Jesus here is addressing this because the swearing of oaths, I mean, think about it. One swore an oath before another person in order to demonstrate one's one's truthfulness, that one was a person of his or her word. And so in order to bolster your position, in order to justify yourself, you would swear a grandiose oath to demonstrate your, your seriousness, your sobriety. And this was problematic. Jesus is calling out his disciples. He's calling them to a higher standard. And he's saying, no, 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 I'm calling you to a radical truthfulness let your yes be yes, your no be no. Anything more than that comes from the evil one. You are to be people of integrity, people of your word, truth tellers. And if you live your life telling the truth, if you live with integrity, then let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more comes from the evil one because you're seeking to puff yourself up. You're seeking to justify yourself. Really, it's born out of pride. And Jesus will have none of that. And so he is calling his disciples to, to live differently and to cease the swearing of oaths. Now, before we conclude, let me just point out, this is not a blanket statement. It's not like it is absolutely forbidden for Christians to swear oaths. Let's be very, very clear here. We are to not make this a common practice, but in certain circumstances and situations, it is permissible for us to swear oaths. I'll give you just a quick citation here from the Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 2154, which states, and I quote, Following St. Paul, the tradition of the Church has understood Jesus' words as not excluding oaths made for grave and right reasons. For example, in court. Let's stop there for a second. When you are sworn in as, as a jury or as a witness, you are swearing an oath, a solemn oath to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, in the service of justice. And in that solemn proceeding that is seeking the truth, that is seeking to administer justice, in that kind of a circumstance and situation, it is permissible. It concludes... An oath, that is the invocation of the divine name as a witness to truth, cannot be taken unless in truth, in judgment, and in justice. Close quote. And so I just wanted to make mention of that because there are many who labor under the misconception that under no circumstances is one permitted to swear an oath. And that is, that's not the teaching of the church. That's not how the church understands and views this. In fact, if you read the writings of St. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in Galatians chapter 1, you find him swearing oaths. 
So if it's not permissible in any situation or circumstance, then why is St. Paul himself doing that? So there are certain situations and circumstances where it is permissible. But Jesus here is, is seeking to correct the common practice of the swearing of these lesser oaths, which just undermine one's credibility. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So with that said, we've just covered four of the six antitheses in this section of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. And I hope, I certainly hope, that this exposition has been helpful to you as we grapple with the significance, the profundity of Jesus's teaching here. He's calling his disciples to a radical interiorization of God's word and God's law. He's aiming for the cardia. He's aiming for the heart, calling them to a higher standard. Now, moving on quickly to our first reading, which is taken from the book of Sirach, Sirach chapter 15, verses 15 through 20. And this passage beautifully dovetails with today's gospel. Essentially, it is reminding us that we we have free will. And as such, given that we have free will, we have the ability to choose to do God's will, to obey the commandments. We read in verse 15, If you will, you can keep the commandments. And to act faithfully is a matter of your own free choice. He, God, has placed before you fire and water. Stretch out your hand for whichever you wish. Before a man are life and death. And whichever he chooses will be given to him. For great is the wisdom of the Lord. He is mighty in power and sees everything. His eyes are on those who fear him, and he knows every deed of a man. He has not commanded anyone to be ungodly, and he has not given anyone permission to sin. Close quote. Beautiful passage that dovetails wonderfully with today's gospel. If you will, if you desire, if you choose, you can keep the commandments. It's not impossible. And I think in light of the standard that Jesus establishes in the Sermon on the Mount, certainly his listeners and even to this very day, it can seem impossible, just absolutely daunting to live up to that standard. But God supplies the grace that we need. God would not call us to something if he were not willing to provide us with the grace necessary to accomplish it. Please remember that God is not going to set us up for failure. He sets a standard and is more than willing, desirous, and able to supply all of our needs in order for us to achieve the purpose for which we were created. That is to become great saints and to glorify God. Beautiful. And then moving to our responsorial psalm, which is taken from Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms, in the Psalter. And the refrain for today's responsorial is, blessed are they who follow the law, blessed are they who follow the law of the Lord. Blessed or happy are they who follow the law of the Lord. Look at verse 1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. Verse 4. Thou hast commanded thy precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping thy statutes. We jump to verse 17. Deal bountifully with thy servant, that I may live and observe thy word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We jump to verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Verse 34. Give me understanding 
that I may keep thy law and observe it with my whole heart. Close quote. Beautiful. Again, another passage chosen to complement today's gospel. Blessed are they who follow. Blessed are we who follow the law of the Lord. Beautiful. And what I'd like to do is cite a few brief but relevant passages from the Catechism, beginning with paragraph 1967, which states, and I quote, The law of the gospel fulfills, refines, surpasses, and leads the old law to its perfection. In the Beatitudes, the new law fulfills the divine promises by elevating and orienting them toward the kingdom of heaven. Close quote. In the very next paragraph, 1968, we read as follows, quote, The law of the gospel fulfills the commandments of the law, the Sermon on the Mount, far from abolishing or devaluing the moral prescriptions of the old law, releases their hidden potential and has new demands arise from them. It reveals their entire divine and human truth. It does not add new external precepts, but proceeds to reform the heart, the cardia the root of human acts, where man chooses between the pure and the impure, where faith, hope, and charity are formed and with them the other virtues. The gospel thus brings the law to its fullness through imitation of the perfection of the Heavenly Father, through forgiveness of enemies and prayer for persecutors, in emulation of the divine generosity. Close quote. Beautiful. You go back with me to paragraph 581, which states, quote, The Jewish people and their spiritual leaders viewed Jesus as a rabbi. He often argued within the framework of rabbinical interpretation of the law. Yet Jesus could not help but offend the teachers of the law, for he was not content to propose his interpretation alongside theirs, but taught the people as one who had authority and not as their scribes. In Jesus, the same word of God that had resounded on Mount Sinai to give the written law to Moses made itself heard anew on the Mount of Beatitudes. Jesus did not abolish the law, but fulfilled it by giving its ultimate interpretation in a divine way. You have heard that it was said to the men of old, but I say to you. Close quote. Paragraph 581 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Well, my friends, this brings our episode to a close. As always, my hope and prayer is that this time together has been a source of inspiration, spiritual nourishment, and edification for you. If it has been, praise God for that. I want to encourage you to join me in in striving to be recollected as we prepare for the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass this coming Sunday, the sixth Sunday in Ordinary Time. As I poured through the Scriptures and as I reflected upon Jesus' word for us, I couldn't help but think of of the Sunday liturgy and the fact that for so many Catholics, sadly, the holy sacrifice of the Mass on Sunday has been reduced to that of a holy obligation, that our obligation is to attend the Mass. Well, our Lord obliges us, obligates us to more than just attending or assisting at the holy sacrifice of the mass we are to immerse ourselves in this great mystery of our faith and how many times have we been guilty of performing our religious duties in a perfunctory way fulfilling an obligation rather than worshiping the one true god in spirit and in truth and so as we prepare for this sunday's liturgy 
let us be recollected. Let us immerse ourselves, mind, body, and soul with our whole hearts as we hear the words of the priest, lift up your hearts, that we would respond in faith, we lift them up to the Lord. Let us go deeper, my friends. Let us ascend with Jesus up the mountain as he teaches us what it means to strive for true righteousness and perfection. Well, my friends, until we gather together next time to consider the readings for the seventh Sunday in Ordinary Time, my prayer continues to be for you in the words of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. May the word of God continue to richly dwell in you. God love you.